We have a larger like shared competency around these things, so we don't need to make things that painfully obvious and rooted in the analog world anymore. We want to make sure that everything that we create reacts as they would expect in the context of the knowledge that they already have. Even if a hamburger menu is terrible, like now that I've encountered my 550th one, like I kind of know what's expected of me here. Taking decisions away that don't really deserve the cognitive footprint that they impose. You're just one more vendor in their stack to integrate so they can get on to doing what they really care about. You know, if there is an instruction manual, it's probably been poorly designed. Your product is code, but your users are humans. Your understanding of the people using it has to be razor sharp. And on the machine side, you have to know your craft. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code, the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. Welcome to Don't Make Me Code, episode four. We're calling this episode Affordances for Developers, and with us today is Dustin Larimer of Keen.io. Hello. And he wrote a really excellent blog post about how they refactored their code based on some documentation. And we're going to get to that in a second. I think first, though, since we're talking about affordances for developers, we need to start with what are affordances, since not everyone may know or realize what they are. And so I don't know if you want to kick that off, Dustin. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a really cool concept. It comes more from product design and industrial design. We're talking about the visual cues or properties or attributes of something that tell you how it works. Like a really great example, like we've got buttons and knobs and dials and levers all around us in our environments. And when we glance at it, you can kind of tell, like, well, this flips up and down, or I push this in, it, you know, I push it out. And so with physical products, it's possible to embed a lot of knowledge about how something works simply in how it looks. And that's the idea of affordances, that the thing kind of teaches itself to you. You, know, you don't have instruction manuals for coffee pots, unless it's some kind of crazy new fangled coffee pot or like tea kettles or things like that. Um, you know, if there is an instruction manual, it's probably been poorly designed um, because it's, it's considered successful when you can just kind of like figure it out. There's not a huge learning curve to, to make it work. And this gets really interesting with software because we're moving from design of physical things to the design of pretty much invisible things. Yeah, and in the digital space, we have things that we call affordances, you know, things that look like buttons or look like links. And we've moved from you know, these skeuomorphic designs to flat designs. And a lot of that stuff, I would argue, is getting harder. Like we have to rely on patterns that we know and trust. And I honestly can't tell sometimes if that's getting easier or harder as we get better at this. Yeah, totally. Like early on, things like like tabs were kind of based on the little tab of a file filing cabinet, like filing uh, sheets, because people were familiar with those in the analog world, and so it kind of transferred nicely into the into the screen world. You know, things like drag and drop were brand new back when you know operating systems became consumer friendly. So, how do you teach people about drag and drop? So the little mouse cursor was a hand that literally grabbed and let go of things. So. It's kind of a transition in, in like the skeuomorphic era was largely to like introduce mainstream public to how these interfaces work because they were familiar with how they, they you know they've seen them before. So if something looked like a big ugly dial on the screen, you knew it could turn. 
but then I guess Apple is a good lead for that, moving away from that with their their big redesign a few years ago, where they they justified it by saying we've kind of moved into a time where enough people have learned about interfaces and screens. Like they, we have we have a, a larger like like shared competency around these things, so we don't really need to make things that painfully obvious and rooted in the analog world anymore. People have a little more capacity for figuring this stuff out, and so they could move into new world where there's not really a lot of basis for how these things work. They just invent new patterns and it goes, you know, it succeeds or it fails. So like hamburger menu was one of those, like everybody agreed it worked and now they're everywhere to a detriment, I think. But um, things like that. So these new languages, new vocabulary kind of goes mainstream, new words become very popular or fall out of favor. Yeah, and they come and go kind of like fashion. I mean, the hamburger menu, again, being a good example, that I feel like there's been a lot of backlash against that because of the cost of the cost of using it that we only realized after playing with the implementation of it for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of also became kind of a crutch. People didn't have to think so much about their information architecture because they could just hide it all behind a hamburger menu. And that was a mobile, a mobile invention that made it into you know desktop and larger screens. And a lot of the usability testing around that, and, and sort of uh, you know, analytics around things like that, find that it's not a great idea. You know, it's not a it's not a very effective design feature to just you know paste in arbitrarily anywhere. It, it you know you kind of have to keep thinking about things. It is interesting though to think about though, because like even if you do end up with a bad design, like if everybody comes on the same design, <laughs> there is some sort of value to that, right? Like. Even if a hamburger menu is terrible, like now that I've encountered my 550th one, like I kind of know, you know, right. what's expected of me here. Yeah, you figured that one out. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. That kind of becomes part of our our like shared vocabulary around these interfaces. Yeah, and in the digital world, it's kind of one abstraction away from the physical world. But then dev tools feel like a whole other level beyond that because now there isn't even. A clicky UI necessarily. There's nothing to latch onto visually, and that's part of what made your story so interesting. And maybe we could start talking about that now. Like, uh, what was the problem you were trying to solve, and, and how you tackled it? Sure. At Keen, I I'm on the experience team. I'm a product designer. I've been doing engineering also for a long time, kind of both interchangeably. Um, and when I came to Keen, I took over all of our JavaScript tooling, uh, data visualization, dashboards, and all that stuff. And so that was the first time I was ever really faced with having to kind of shepherd along a product that's made of code and designed for people. There's a lot of interesting moving pieces to that. But the idea was that we could keep adding new features and tacking new things on and just calling it whatever we wanted to and and sort of letting feature bloat run away and, and do that. Or we could sort of try to consolidate and shrink the footprint so that, I mean, like a big challenge is that when when you're designing a product, you like to believe that it's this really important, crazy thing that people are going to spend a lot of time on and love. Um, but then you have to recognize that you're just one more vendor in their stack. You're just one more thing to integrate, so they can get on to doing what they really care about. And you you can't afford to require people to learn about you. And I think that's going to become co- very competitive of developer facing companies is that time to value. How long does it take for me to figure out what the hell you've created and how to use it and how to plug it in. And so looking at that, we started designing with that in mind first. Like how quickly can somebody find the code, install it, wire it up with you know minimal impact, minimal footprint, and start getting immediate feedback that it's working. 
And so we can't just keep tacking features on and expanding the docs forever. We have to start shrinking at some point. So with the JavaScript SDK, where I've put all of my time, that's a huge factor. It's our most popular SDK. Most of the data that goes in and out of the, out of Keen goes through that. Uh, most of it's coming from browser traffic and that sort of thing. So it's got to be super f- effective at people being able to learn it, install it, use it. Uh, and a big part of that is having confidence to know that the thing you're using or the way you're using it is the right way. That's another big one where a lot of things fall down, where you've you've set it up and you're running it, but you're not totally sure if you did it right. You know the the things, the names of methods, and the way that things are called, and you know it's sort of like ambiguous, and it leaves you wondering if you're going to get surprised one of these days, like you just did it wrong. And we've talked before on the show too about the importance of like boilerplate code and mm-hmm. like CLIs and examples, like all the things that you rely on. Yeah. And so for your for your JavaScript API, this was just all in one place. It was one giant document. Yeah, it was one monolithic library, one big document. It did tracking, recording events. Querying, running analyses, and then visualizing it all in one monolithic pile. And we started breaking those out into their own standalone libraries. And we wanted each one of those to be very purposeful and, and effective and super easy to glance over and get it. So, another thing we've run into with SDKs is the method name to, to log an event or to save an event into Keen is called a lot of different things across different SDKs. It's mm-hmm. add event or record event or push event or whatever. The common thread being events. We talk about events, which is another point of confusion sometimes. <laughs> and so we thought, well, let's just shore that up. Like, let's only say record events, and let's say it everywhere. And that way, when you see something that says record events, you know, you know, with with absolutely no uh, hesitancy whatsoever, that this is the thing you're looking for. You found the right method. This is the way to do it. Uh, it works in a predictable way. So it's really consolidating our vocabulary and shrinking the footprint, so that it makes our messaging more effective. Because it works across all these different languages, and it, it helps us focus the message and give people confidence that they've found what they're looking for, so they don't have to spend hours hunting through docs and looking for examples and asking questions on Stack Overflow to like get that assurance that yes, you've done it right. I thought one of the interesting things about your approach too is the team that you put together. It sounded like there were developers, designers, product managers, like people from all disciplines in the company that got together to work on the problem. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about how you approached it? Totally. Um, yeah. So that's. Part of that is to do with Keen itself. So we've always been hedged on generalists, uh, mission-driven generalists specifically, where we we like to have people come in who who might have some, like, in most cases, do have some really great specialty and competency in one important area, but have a lot of sort of lateral interests across other areas and have spent time doing marketing or content strategy or design. In addition to engineering, you know, we find people who are doing one thing in life and then became platform engineers, and so they bring a lot of uh, really amazing breadth to the perspective when we solve these types of problems. And so, on my team, experience team, we are part of engineering, but we're the part that makes the API fit for human consumption. So we build apps and interfaces and tools, developer tools, point-and-click user tools, all the parts of the website that people interact with when they log in. Uh, so we own the developer experience and the just general point-and-click user experience. We want people to find what they're looking for and get value fast. And so to do that, we have some amazing engineers on the team, some really brilliant engineers. Uh, a lot of our stuff specializes in JavaScript because that's just the, the environment that we spend most of our time in and build stuff in. But people who have also done product management and design and content strategy and things like that in the past. So we're a very small team with a, a lot of 
a very broad experience. And I think that's important to sort of keep breaking yourself out of uh, the bubble where you might only see things inside of one paradigm. And uh, I think that's where you get caught. Yeah, and you were talking about the need for consistency both in the lexicon and in like the, the and in the function of the tools. And so it sounds like you ended up figuring out a logic to break what was one big monolith into pieces. And mm-hmm. so and there was some some pretty good logic it sounded like that came out of that. And so can you talk about the results and so the way we went about it first is we used that idea of breaking it out and, and having standalone SDKs for these three functions for tracking or querying and visualization. To we looked at it as a chance to kind of break away from some of the patterns of earlier stuff and try to build like the ideal and then try to like work our way back and make it somewhat backward compatible. But we took the chance to to really get our thinking clear first and to do that. And that's where the thesis in that blog post came from is that you know if we were building physical products, you know, we wouldn't start building a, a tea kettle by bending aluminum and, and hammering something out in the shop. We would probably just get a big piece of paper and start sketching. And start thinking through all the different what ifs and maybes, and and to really kind of push the form of that until we could remove all the things that weren't necessary, and we could focus on what mattered, and we could get our thinking really, really clear. And so, we did that with these SDKs also, where we realized that software is more or less invisible in that sense, but its form is its documentation. So. We started out just sketching docs, just doing install guides, uh, writing like pseudocode for how to install and run this thing, looking at all of the different method names and functionalities people wanted, and making sure it was consistent. You know, it's like if you you don't want the situation where where if you use this method, it gives you a callback with these arguments, and if you use another one, it gives you a callback with different arguments, or maybe no callback with no explanation whatsoever. So <laughs> we want that consistency to become part of the sort of vocabulary for how the thing functions. And by doing that, we came to a very, very clear spec of not only how the thing works, but how I, how I use it, how I install it and run it, and under what examples and situations. So we wrote a lot of example code, and all this was before we wrote a single line of code. The beauty in that is once you have that Perfect, clear picture of what you're building, with good rationale for why it needs to exist. Yeah, putting the code together is actually took no time at all. Um, yeah, and it sounds like a lot of the code, you know, it's already there. You figured out a really nice way to sensibly reorganize the documents, and then you reorganize the code to fit that. And then, yeah, yep. So we started by designing our our thinking and designing the conceptual form of it, and then filled in the rest, uh, and really wrote a lot of tests before we even wrote the code itself. So. That really changed the way that I've thought about making software. Where, like now, I, if I ever catch myself getting stuck on something new, I realize it's because I'm like looking at a very granular level and kind of painting myself into a corner. So I'll stop, drop it back up, and start writing out pseudocode and docs for it, and then it makes sense. So yeah, that's that's become our process now. For at least on my team, I think I couldn't speak to other engineering teams and what they do because they're kind of running their own experiments and. Learning from their own journey, but it's working for us. So I'm kind of curious, just like you know, as you start you know designing from like documentation rather than you know kind of top down, you know from the experience. At what point do you actually start sharing some of that documentation with like customers, users? Like, do you even do that before you write code at all? Like, do you, can can you iterate entirely at that point? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. So the new tracking SDK. That we wrote in JavaScript, that was just one gigantic markdown file that 
eventually became the README, which is it's like a one-page doc for the README that covers everything. And I just started sending that around to people who are like engineers who do a lot of support, people who have worked with customers hands-on. Uh, some of our bigger customers have people that actually just help them with their integrations and stuff. So I started bouncing this off of my teammates, people that support and use our SDKs, um, and some customers too. I've got like a list of like a short list of customers who have been super active contributors on projects in the past who are really open to seeing new things and give a lot of great feedback. So I would just shoot it at them and say, you know, I want to make this thing. This is kind of a new idea. It brings in some new stuff, cuts some old stuff. What do you think? And I'd get questions back like, well, I get it, but where, like, how do I install it or what is this? Like, oh, okay, that's not clear. So that feedback, like questions that you get in return and, and sort of first impressions are priceless. Like that's where you get, like, did this idea land? Did they glance over this page and get it? Or did they have to come back and dig into it? That kind of becomes the success criteria for the the sketch. Yeah, the most vocal customers being the best ones is something that David and I were talking about and found really interesting. That is because we're both also very early stage companies compared to Keen. And so I mean at least Opsy, we're in a private beta right now. And so we're relying heavily on very vocal people to tell us what they want and specifically what they don't like. And particularly like a major refactor of something that a lot of people are already using. The stakes are high. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like a really good Approach. Yeah, yeah, totally. The consistency thing is really interesting. Both, you know, our customers being developers, they rely on that kind of consistency. I thought it was really interesting how you opened by saying, like, your product is code, but your users are humans. And so mm-hmm. you have to make the two work. And so using the same commands to perform the same functions. And so, you know, our users have that expectation. But then for us as the creators of that API and those tools, what are the tools that help us? And so we were talking about like Swagger. And so have you started using stuff like that at Keen? Yeah, we've seen some customers asking for these types of things like Swagger files and and that sort of thing. Like that's where a lot of new ideas come from. Is really just customers exploring and taking advantage of all the new stuff that's out there. I mean, they can individually move a little faster than we can because we have to sort of control like a. a a pace that we can actually deliver stuff, and then like we want to go out and play with all the cool new tools all the time. But realistically, like there's other concerns first, and so we get to see a lot of that 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 glimmer of what might be coming from customer questions. Like everybody at Keen does support in some form or another. Uh, we're always getting feedback. We're seeing where our stuff breaks down. I've seen people trying to load up our. JavaScript SDKs in new and crazy environments like Apple TV supports a form of JavaScript. Um, that was really exciting to see. The SDK crashed and burned and failed miserably in that environment. So we're going to do something new there, but we would never know about it unless people were actually active and pushed questions back and hit issues and and like vocalized them and shared them with us. Customers build all kinds of crazy new st- uh, stuff on top of us. So we see all sorts of sort of intermediary middleware apps that run jobs on Keen and crunch data in new ways and provide new value for themselves and then sometimes they share that code with us and we we get a better sense of kind of where they're going where their imaginations are pointing um, and that comes back into how we work and what we build and what we prioritize absolutely but yeah on the API front as far as like that that boundary between humans and machines I mean your your understanding of the people using it has, has to be razor sharp you've got to be completely con- consistently in contact and have Real empathy and understanding of how people work, and you know what they're up against, and why they're using you. Then on the machine side, you just you have to know your craft. You have to write clean code. You have to understand how people 
write software projects these days, what tools they use, what build steps and test steps they use, and uh, what like script loaders and environmental factors they're dealing with. Like you have to, it has to be solid, and to reconcile those two, your thinking has to be crystal clear on both fronts. Yeah. So, and I think like a lot of these API blueprints and things like that are a really good start because it's another format to like kind of see it all in a glance and get it, and it takes a lot of the learning out. Of that, so yeah, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff on the way. Yeah, and you touched on, I guess, what I'd call the burden of expectation, and that your users, your keen users, have expectations about what the product will do based on what they know it does now. And then David was talking earlier about the expectation that a user of their product has as someone who's also using AWS, and like the different levels of expectation that we have to attach to when we're building APIs and tools. And David, maybe you could start there too, like. Uh, the expectations that you built your product on based on AWS? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, just one thing that we try and, and really keep in mind is that most of our users are also AWS users and they have all of this like knowledge and familiarity that they've built up. And we want to make sure that everything that we create for them you know, is going to be familiar to them, is not going to break in unexpected ways, is sort of going to you know, react as they would expect when they, they interact with it, you know, in the context of the, the knowledge that they already have. I mean, it's just, it's really important for us for the technology not to be scary, I guess. And as long as it reacts predictably, it, it tends to make people feel okay. Yeah, definitely. But you know, as soon as you're not sure what's going to happen when you push this button, like, and now you'll just never push that button. Yeah, predictable is the word. I think that's the word. Because, uh, you know, people are natural problem solvers and pattern hackers. And if they expect something to happen based on the, the sort of blueprint you've given them and it works, then you'd get trust. You can build trust that way. I saw a really cool little quote earlier, maybe like an hour ago, that developer trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets, <laughs> and that is totally spot on, right? Like engineers hate being surprised <laughs> because it's usually in bad ways. So that predictability is huge. And they're investing a lot in you potentially if they're learning your API, they're learning how to write code on your platform. We have expectations of our users to. To invest time and, and energy in us, and like if we violate that trust, they're gone. Right. Yeah, and especially in the place now with the, all the tools that are out there, a lot of people bump up against the question of like, maybe I should build this myself, maybe I should run this service myself, and and do that. And that's that's a real question that a lot of people decide to go the other way and try to do it themselves. And they'll find lots of fun pitfalls and surprises of scaling event data uh, warehouse and trying to like not let that compete with your core business model, but. Yeah, the question up front is like, and those are awesome developers to say like, I think I could probably do this myself. Like that's badass. It's, uh, it's cool that we live in a time where that's possible and feasible. So yeah, like building and maintaining and protecting that trust is is huge. Yeah, I think that's a really funny and unique consideration of DevTools companies too. Is that we're competing with our own customers. That right. we have to convince them that they are going to want to use our thing instead of building it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's interesting. We were talking earlier about there being sort of two audiences for these things, you know, humans and machines, and like that affects the design of these things in, in so many different ways. Also, you know, talking about like engineer trusts is, you know, so you're building an API. You know, if you're building a, a visual interface, you know, you, there is certainly some advantage to having it remain, you know, the same and familiar in a lot of ways, even if you do make incremental improvements and you know evolve it over time. But if you're building an API, it's like that thing cannot change, and if it changes, it has to do so in very predictable and you know, 
even the change in versioning mechanism itself needs to be designed because you know once this thing changes, it's not that you know this button moved and now I have to find it. It's that you know everything built on top of it falls down and breaks. Right. Yeah, there are so many good examples and 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 counter examples of that, like. You know, Twitter basically cutting off access or um, rate limiting users and kind of alienating the dev community. Maybe an example that a, a company that's done it really well, I think, is Stripe. Like they have a, I think, a really well versioned API. Like I mm-hmm. created my first Stripe integration five years ago, and that specific integration still lives right. exactly as it was. Yeah, yeah, they do a great job. I think they version on the user, right? So you have to like opt into updates. Ah, right. That's a really great model. I mean, that makes documentation tricky because it has to stay. Has to stay versioned with, you know, every single version going on. But it's not impossible, and they figured it out. I think they have a really awesome product for it. And Keen now is a pretty mature company. Have there been any cases already where you've been kind of bitten in the ass by like expectation, and that you your API or something is set up a certain way, and you're maybe held back a little by that? Or yeah, we've hit some issues where there's things we want to change or add, and it's just not. You just can't. You can't like. Change response structures, or like we can add new features, but we can't really rev on the old. I mean, we're working on a pretty huge update now that will be an opt-in kind of update, and will be a really uh, like a much-needed improvement on a lot of fronts. We're we're really understanding the new use cases that are emerging in a in a very like very intimate and visceral way because we've been supporting this thing for like all these years now. <laughs> so we're working on that, but that type of versioning going forward is going to be tricky because like. We want to move faster. We want to build more stuff, and there's just a real question about like how you balance that with everything else. So yeah, I, I don't know. There's a lot of different techniques for versioning. Some people say you shouldn't at all, <laughs> and that seems, seems kind of uh, violent. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a real question for us too, like how we want to do that going forward, so that we can innovate and release stuff faster. Yeah, and how companies approach that seems really important too. Like. Maybe this was my own fault, but I had a little Instagram integration on my own website, just a personal project, and it broke a couple times because their API changed. I wasn't aware of it, and I just you know went and saw that the pictures weren't loading. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was opting out of some kind of communication that I shouldn't have, but like I don't remember being notified. And so you know clearly you're alienating customers if you don't handle these kinds of decisions well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it frustrating. People will just start to route around you if they can't rely on you. The human versus machine needs thing too is interesting. I mean, we've we've talked a lot about like the human needs for sort of consistency and clear expectation and lexicons being like human readable, but there are the machine expectations too. Like a lot of what we do at Opsi is health checking of HTTP services, and so there's a clear structure to those responses that we need to adhere to, and that constraint can be good at times because it means we can make a lot of assumptions and guesses about how things are going to talk to each other, mm-hmm. and. So we're kind of trying to build a business on this, actually. Like the expectation that services are going to talk a certain way, and how we can evaluate them as being healthy based on that, and that feels like leverage. That if we make the right assumptions as developers of APIs, as consumers of APIs, that can take us to good places. Mm-hmm. Have you encountered any kind of uh, you know similar challenges or ideas around this, around like versioning and around? Like, how has that influenced your team? We're still a pretty new company, and so we're still working on like V1 of our API. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have moved to GraphQL 
because we have about 20 microservices at this point and they were communicating in a totally bespoke fashion. And so already we're having consistency issues and so we are looking for a way to solve that and you know something like we we've been using swagger and we've started using graphql and so like this is a way for us as you say as you said before to kind of see the big picture mm-hmm. and to know that what we're doing is going to is going to work well for our users mm, that's cool and david i don't know if you've seen something similar at convox yeah, so we actually we have a slightly different problem there i mean convox is installed software so like we basically are heavily versioned by nature. It's kind of, you know, it's not a, a service to speak. So everybody has, you know, we have customers on a hundred different versions of our API right now, and that sort of just works because oh. you know they stay with their installed version, and you know then they just kind of upgrade on on their own schedule. So so yeah, it's a little bit different than kind of a central service where you're upgrading the central service behind the scenes all the time. Are you talking about mostly the open source stuff there? Because you've got yeah. the SaaS too, right? Mm-hmm. So this our SaaS layer really just forwards everything on to the installed product. It's like a, an authentication gateway, and then forwards the traffic more or less. So, say so yeah, all of the versioning is handled by you know, which particular version they have installed of the software. So, oh wow, it's more of like a, a classical problem of you know releasing a, a physical product you know once a year and you know goes out with its old features, and then you, know, mm-hmm. you kind of just forget about it almost. Yeah, you can't ship updates to hardware. <laughs> the two companies I worked at before this one both had agents that you had to install in your systems to use the product. So, mm-hmm. and those agents had lots of issues. Uh, the long tail of out of date agents, people just didn't update them. They would break, or somebody who would stop using the product and their agent was still there. And so we had dead customers. Like one of these products in particular had uh, it was making requests once a second, and these these things there were so many. Zombie agents communicating once a second—that it was an actual uh, bandwidth problem. Like they had to build the service to block these connections from dead users. <laughs> so now we have an interesting approach where, well, one, we don't have an agent. We basically spin up a new instance inside somebody's AWS environment, and that does all the work for us. But we also have a um, containerized layer on top of that where we can send uh, a message over to this thing and it will automatically trigger a update and restart. And so it's at least partially mitigating that problem, but we yeah. still have to rely on like getting into the customer's environment. Yeah, totally. When I was saying you can't ship updates to hardware, I was thinking about toasters. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it is a major problem though. Like yeah. even with intelligent, you know, servers and machines, like you still have to rely on the customer kind of opting into that stuff for the most part. Yeah, totally. One other thing that was interesting was uh, talking a little bit about the human versus machine thing. Is uh, they mentioned that with APIs, that the documentation is almost the form of the thing itself, you know, rather than the actual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to think about. You know, that it's not really true of a lot of things. Like, you know, if I buy some product, you know, when I pull the manual out, that's not like the first thing I go for and the most interesting thing. And so. Yeah, it just it really makes me think. Like, you know, should this documentation be way more interactive? Should you actually be able to play with the API itself, mm. you know, and actually put your hands on the real thing and not just the documentation? Yeah, that's that's another thing Stripe got right uh, is being able to embed your actual keys in the examples so that you could just copy paste right out of the docs and use it, and it would work. But yeah, I think that's that's a really great point about. Being able to kind of go the next step, not just glance at it and see how it works, but actually start interacting with it, um, especially around docs. I think not just for people trying to understand how something works, but understand the language itself, like to learn more about 
JavaScript with these types of real-time examples or learn more about um, you know, PHP or Python or what have you with getting real feedback. Because when you get real feedback, you start to develop these sort of systemic relationships between things. If I change this value, I see the output in real time and I can start to like toggle and tweak things and understand more of the sort of the boundaries of this thing, like the boundaries of the system, what it's capable of, and get like a like you can download a lot of information very quickly with that kind of interaction. So yeah, I would love to see something like that with more sort of contextual information embedded around the docs. Like if I'm looking at a, an example of how something is working and I hover over a callback function and it pops up and says this is a callback function. It takes this and this and it <laughs> kind of like in some ways could teach you a little bit about about that language if you're not Super sharp on it, but at a very uh, basic level, it shows you how the system works. I think a lot of people would benefit from that, especially now that there's so many more developers in the world who are learning and, and growing into their careers. That could be super valuable. I was talking with the founder of a company called API Matic. His name's Adil Ali, and he had a really interesting tool in this area that from a swagger, you can generate an API, and then his tool will. Generate SDKs from that language-specific SDKs, and so now, not only you know we're in a world that basically from documentation you can get an API, you can get SDKs. Uh, I think they also have an integration with like Apiary, so that you can get documentation built on top of that. So we're kind of inching closer. It would be really awesome, you know, to get like boilerplate code and examples out of that, so that. You can kind of get closer to this world where you can just like copy and paste the bits you need in your language of choice. That just seemed like a really cool step forward. Yeah, that's super cool. I've seen things like this popping up also around SDK generation, and yeah, it seems like a logical step for somebody to build a service that creates a lot of value, and there to be an intermediary. Um, I mean, Segment did that to some extent with sort of consolidating all of the trackers by having a single, you know, Analytics JS library you install, and then can like load up and send data to whoever you want. So it's been cool to see that sort of thesis play out and. And be pretty effective too. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get data into a system anyway. So, it's exciting to see stuff like this. Yeah, and especially with more languages, more frameworks, more stuff out there, we need tools like this to make it easier for everyone mm-hmm. and make my job a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> there is also, I think, an art to aligning all of this stuff with use cases and what your customers are actually using it for. And I remember go, going all the way back to like the, the early Google Maps API and just like how easy they made it to copy and paste boilerplate code and just drop a pin on a map or like all the all the stuff you'd really want to use that tool for. And that there's still that the magic in it I think is really aligning that stuff with what people want to do. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some great examples of affordances in the DevTools world and tools that make use of great affordances. The first one that comes to mind is Lighttable and the idea that code can be sort of compiled and visualized instantly and that you can be making changes to variables or properties and, and, and see that stuff play out in real time. And The first example of something like that I remember seeing was Brett Victor's presentation about it and the simulations that he had created where you could modify mechanical properties of materials and just see all that stuff play out as you were tweaking the values. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So he's done some really awesome stuff. Like, really sort of opens up a lot of wild new ideas for everybody else to go build. Uh, he's got that like visionary bent and does a lot of amazing research around the stuff. But yeah, like Lighttable, he had another talk 
something like new media for thinking the unthinkable. And the idea it starts with is beautiful. Like imagine back before before the written word, before we could actually put thoughts down on any kind of surface, there were some thoughts that were just too big to think because you couldn't hold it all in your mind at one time. It was just so great that you couldn't capture it all to feel it and to express it and share it. But once we could write, you could actually sketch out an idea that's bigger than what you can think about at any one time and it was revolutionary. And then sort of how media, he follows how media has changed over the years and, and millennia to where we are today where the things that we're trying to think and share are of very complex systemic nature. They're, they're huge again, they're dealing with systems um, at a very high scale. And so what would media look like to convey that complexity in a way that's easy to digest and download? And, and he had this app I was sort of like a data visualization app, kind of felt like Illustrator. You could load up a bunch of data and create systemic relationships between the values of the data with different knobs and dials to understand things like radio frequencies or current in a system or back pressure in a server system, things like that. So that was really interesting to look at new interfaces for letting people play with systems and understand them at a very intimate kind of level. So it's just a matter of time to see that stuff work its way into programming also. To the point where you know, it's becoming more possible for uh, non-developers to create pretty sophisticated programs or automations or connections between systems with point-and-click interfaces. Yeah, we mentioned Stripe earlier, and I think they're another, I mean, just great example of this kind of affordances in design. Like, they take something that could be really scary, like, oh, I need to, like, test whether or not this API that charges a credit card actually works. And you're like, well, what, do I have to put in a real credit card or, or what's going on here? And, and they make it really easy through, like, yeah, good test data and sort of all this, like, supporting tools to, to really confidently build with the stuff without, without the fear that would, that kind of comes with, you know, financial things are, are scary. Totally, yeah, and and even to be able to play in a sandbox without getting billed uh, is mm-hmm. huge. Makes yeah. the barrier to entry and exploring and trialing so much easier. That's huge. They've just done a lot of good stuff. <laughs> Seems like that they is, figured a lot of things out. That is really cool. Like the use case specific example there of that. Yeah, Stripe gave you both the developer sandbox where anything you did would be offline. And then also, I think even if you are in production, they had like certain credit card numbers that you could enter to test out certain operations. And they went through a lot of thought to, to make those tools accessible. And that was really cool because I remember when I was integrating Stripe for the first time, I had to use another payments processor also uh, because they weren't uh, Stripe didn't support a bunch of other countries at that point, and yeah, they this other payment processor didn't have any of those tools, and so it was a nightmare. Like I was testing out with real payments and then refunding myself uh, because I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't do that. You guys were talking earlier too about like Go specific tooling and how it's a relatively new language, but a lot of cool tooling has popped up around it, and this is not my area of expertise, so. Yeah, I mean, just one of the great things about you know the kind of the tooling that's popped up around that language is that I mean, one of the classic debates with any programming language, you know, people argue tabs versus spaces formatting. How do we do things like Go? Basically, just like they got together and decided to solve it. There's one right one right way to do it. You can run a command on a file and it'll just reformat it the right way. And so, as a result, you know, most of the editors, whether it's Vim or, or TextMate or whatever, uh, for Go, you know, when you save, it just reformats the file in the right way. And yeah, just having that that one little decision taken away from you 
is is a huge time saver. Yeah, totally. Unless you focus on the thing that matters, not having to like sort of nitpick and lint and get lost in the minutia there. But yeah, Go is interesting. I mean, I haven't done much with it at all, but just fascinated by that model of, like you said, taking decisions away that don't really deserve the cognitive footprint that they impose. Like taking a lot of that ambiguity away so that like you said, there's a right way to do it. It's pretty clear. The language is very explicit. It's painfully explicit and verbose. And it just kind of, I don't know, de-risks big projects. We have new new people jumping on code that somebody else wrote, and you can just get it. You can understand it. But it makes me wonder, too, if the language is that specific and structured, and a lot of the work happening with natural language processing now, I wonder if these ever merge where you can just like, Talk into a microphone like I am right now, and just say, you know, build this thing, do this, you know, run this method, call this server, take the response, send it here, infer like semantic meaning out of that, and just go scaffold it out because there's one way to do that stuff. Could be really interesting to see where that goes. Like maybe voice is the next IDE. (laughs) That would be wild. Yeah, that's so much of what we do. (laughs) That would be really interesting. It's almost like you have to be able to reason about the entire program and and get it right. Up front, or at least have a lot of the work done for you. One of my teammates built a Slack bot that uses NLP, so you can just talk to it in our in our Slack room and tell it to run queries against Keen, and it'll give you charts back. So it'll run off, figure out what query you're asking for, run the query, spin up a Phantom JS instance, build a chart, take a picture, and push that back in the Slack channel. <laughs> so you can just let like we have a Slack bot data scientist now, where it's like, hey, like how many page views did we get in the last twelve hours, divided by or grouped by country. And that chart comes back, not a table of data or response, but just you get a picture. And that's fun. Like that stuff's really cool to make. Like we made a robot that uses Keen for you. So yeah, I'm excited to see what what that does, voice and text for these types of like reasoning about these big systems and and making them work for you. Yeah, it does seem like the chat room is the sort of intermediary step to get there. That we already live in this world now. We're all communicating in the room, and it sounds like you've already built something that'll. Cater to that. We've been talking about this too, like even punting on a mobile app or something, so that we can better integrate with with chat. And there's obviously a lot of talk now about like text being the new UI. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, text, voice, and email. I think are always going to be like the main channels for content. So that was a big one too for us. Like talking about dashboards, we're just working on a big dashboard feature now that's going to be really awesome. People have been asking for it for a long time. Being able to build custom dashboards and and track things happening in your Keen projects, but another really useful format for dashboards is to just get them emailed to you. So, you know, the seven a.m. sitting on the toilet, waking up use case, like your dashboards are there. You see your engagement from yesterday, all your new signups, all your stuff, revenue, just sitting there, waking up, thumb through your dashboard, close it, archive it, done. You'll get another one tomorrow. Like that would be fun to build, and we've seen some people build that. For themselves, but that could be a really fun service for anybody to build on top of Keen. I think we would be their first customer. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's really cool to see like f- freeform text as a format on both consumption and on input. That was an interesting one about the medium of delivery, like the dashboard versus the notification. Let's call it. I mean, we're that's a big part of what we're dealing with now is like who the user is and the mode of delivery that. For us, it's sort of about infrastructure operations, and for someone whose full-time job it is to make sure that things are working well, they'll happily keep a dashboard up on a big screen somewhere, and just because they know what to look for, it's their job. But a lot of our users, this is not their main job. They want to write code, 
And so we spent a lot of time trying to make that easier for them by giving them rich notifications with charts, with relevant context, like everything that they need to know what they need to know and then get back to doing what they actually want to be doing. Yeah. Which, totally. yeah, and you kind of said it perfectly at the top of the show, like for all of us as makers of dev tools, like who are users, you know, they use the tool, but that's not their end, that they're, they have their own interests, they're doing their thing. Yeah. We are merely a means to it. And so mm-hmm. we need to get out of the way. Totally. Yeah. You got to give them power and get out of the way and let them use it. It's been really fun talking about affordances and how they, Exist in the world of developer tools, and it's been really fun having you, Dustin, on the show. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, they should. So, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, awesome. So, they can find me on Twitter, it's just Larimer, my last name, L A R I M E R. It's just at Larimer. Medium as the same username, and then pretty much anything to do with Keen, you can jump in our Slack, our public Slack room, and come ask questions and see what we're building and hang out with us. And, Slack pretty much any day of the week. Uh, there's usually a dozen keen people in there hanging out at any given time. But yeah, thanks for inviting me to come chat. It's been a lot of fun and really an awesome topic. I'm interested to see where this sort of body of knowledge and conversation goes because it's becoming more and more essential for companies to think about. And there's people out there putting a lot of awesome work and thought into it. Cool. Yeah, it's been great having you. And like you said, this developer experience is now table stakes for building a dev tools company. And so, yeah, it's fun to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, thanks for joining us. That's about all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at don't make me code. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.